This is another episode from the archive. That's what I'm calling them now, the archive. It's cuter. But good conversations tend to remain true over time. I didn't know this guest before she was suggested to me. There wasn't any books you could read to get an idea about her philosophy. What I could gather was Artie was the winner of a show called The Next Food Network Star, and Artie was an underdog. She was a journalist who decided to go back to culinary school, start a food blog. She was a dreamer who followed her dreams, competed on the talent show, won the competition, got the contract, got the show, and was now living the dream as a celebrity chef. Sounds dreamy, right? We love underdogs. Underdog stories fill the pages of our novels, light up our TV screens, and touch us on a deep and personal level. They actually say the art of screenwriting is the art of writing conflict. We love underdogs because we are underdogs. Our regular lives have conflict, losses, triumphs. A regular life is a real drama, and we're the protagonists facing the challenge of our life. Talk to a person stuck in a job they hate and ask them why they keep showing up. Why don't they just find another job? You already know the answer to that. On any given day, it seems like there's a million and one ways you could absolutely shatter your life by screwing up or making a bad decision. There's a little truth to that. It's easy to tear things down. This is my main problem with most of the internet revolutionaries calling for destruction. Any asshole with a sledgehammer can take down a house, but it takes a little more than a hammer to build one. You can destroy a good 20-year marriage in one night of infidelity, but building a good 20-year marriage takes, well, 20 years of hard work. I'm not trying to scare you. Trust me. I'm a testament that you can make a tremendous amount of life-ruining bad decisions and still build something beautiful over the old remains. Artie took the leap, risked it all, entered the arena, emerged victorious, and got the cooking show. The dream. And then the cooking show got canceled. Follow your dreams, right? Or (laughs) if your aspirations are a little too high for your station, in your dreams. So what the hell are you supposed to do with your aspirational dreams? Stuff them down? Chase them down? Well, I say dream on. Your dreams are so important. They're part of your intuition. I want you to live in your dreams. But as someone who has had several dreams come true and seen the reality of those dreams not matching what was real in those dreams while they were dreams, let me give you some pointers I've picked up. Your dreams are clues. They're not blueprints. You may dream of being famous, but in reality, you may just want to be loved. Maybe it's a clue that you want more love in your life. How can you build that? It really only takes a few good friends and participating in a community. You may dream of being rich, Filthy rich, but that might just represent feeling safe and secure. What would it really take to feel more safe and secure? Who knows? Maybe it is endless riches. Anyway, you see where I'm going with this? Oh, Artie is fine, by the way. That's not the end of the story, as you'll soon find out. Here is my conversation with Artie Sequeira. We've called In Your Dreams. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember. Thanks for having me here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for, for everyone coming. listening. We're in Red Rock Entertainment, which has nice modern architecture that doesn't have a roof. So <laughs> we've asked all the agents to be as quiet as possible. Yeah. You know, um, they're desperately it, trying to find their Well, believe it work. or not, if you actually came to my house, it would be way louder than this because I have two little daughters who like to yell and scream and sing. How old? The oldest, Aliyah, is six, and the youngest is four. Oh, those are great ages. I have a 10-year-old. You do? Yeah. Boy or girl? Boy. Had him when I was 19. Congratulations. <laughs> well done. Yeah. <laughs> How's that going? I should have had that on my knuckles. What do you have? Well I have made. well made. I like that. Well done would have been hilarious. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I need that somewhere, actually. You now. should get it somewhere. So 
you mentioned that you don't know what we're going to be talking about. I don't either. Normally, there's a book. There's some way I can like stalk you deeply. Yeah. I don't even know why you know me. I know you because a dear person who I respect and love said, you need to have this person on the podcast. No way. Yeah. And I just said, okay. Am I allowed to know who that was? Yeah. It's my friend Misty. Okay. Do I know Misty? I don't know. No. Okay. Maybe. (laughs) I don't think so. Misty knows you. Okay, good. Well, that's uh, very nice. Thank you, Misty. She watched the Food Network show, not mm-hmm. Artie Party, the the, cont- the star. Yeah, what's the title of that? It was called uh, Food Network Star. Food Network Actually, Star. Back then, it was a mouthful. It was the next Food Network Star. Then they shortened it to Food Network Star. That was 2010, so that was nearly 10 years ago now. No, yeah, 2010, 2011, when I did that, and I competed against 12 other people. Highly, highly trained and certified and experienced people. And then thank goodness I won because if I'd gone through all of that and not won, that would have broken me into pieces. I would be okay, but just thinking about it, I don't know how I could have gotten through. And then that's what launched this whole career. So I like to start this way. Mm -hmm. And this can be as big or small of a question as you'd like. Okay. Who are you? I guess, first of all, I'm a Jesus geek wife. I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a lover of food. And I just realized this last night. I This sounds so trite, but I really do. I love people. I, I love hanging out with people and talking to them and getting to know them and figuring out, much like you, I assume, what makes them tick. What What's your thing? What's What do you believe? And how do you get over things when they don't go your way? I want to know those things. I want to know because I learn from them too. But my husband and I have been together since we were 18. And wow. Yeah. So we were talking last night about what we would do if the other one died. And I'm morbid. <laughs> I, I so, promise it's not like that all honey, the time. Honey, what do you really want to do right yeah. now? <laughs> Let's talk about what happens when you die. It was because he had been talking to an older lady. He's an actor and he got to be on set last week and there was an older lady there who had just lost her husband a few years ago and they had been together for 35 years. And so he was much like me, he wants to get down to the core of things. And so he was asking her what that's like. And she said, it just feels very strange. Things are not complete when you go about your day. And I said that I think my day would feel very quiet because he is so loud and he provides so much joy and background music and the whole thing in our house. And the only way that I can get that is by going and finding people and hanging out with them. And then I can come back into my environment sort of tank filled, but it's not something that I can manufacture on my own. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I, at first when I was doing this, worked out of my house Mm -hmm. and then I was like, this isn't going to go well. Like I'm going to lose my mind. (laughs) working here so down the road when i could i finally got like office in a co-working space mm-hmm. and it's oh. better but i still every day have to go down to this little tea house down the street because yeah. like i'm an introvert i like mm-hmm. i have like a love hate relationship with people where it's like i need them and then i don't want them but i still need them so. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no i get that too yeah i do i do hit a limit where when i start being irritated <laughs> with people i'm like okay i better go for multiple reasons one i don't want people to see that side of me just because it's definitely when I'm the tank is empty. But two, it's also because the tank is empty. So it's like a warning side. It's like, that's my E, you know? Yeah. So it means I have to go. I got a sense from my friend that while you're on the show, you felt like an underdog. Mm. And that was kind of one of the the things that they honed in on as yeah. well. Um, yeah. Before we start with the show, though, let's talk about how you ended up 
on the show, like what led up to the show, maybe you could start off just what you feel is important. You could even yeah. go to childhood if you wanted to. Well, sure. I mean, so when I was little, I grew up in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates and I went to an English school there. So that's why. Were you I'm native? Here. No, oh. I'm Indian. Yeah. But my parents moved there after I was born, three months after I was born. I remember when the first Gulf War happened and we got CNN on our TV. And it was the first time I'd seen real news, uncensored, independent reporting, going out and finding out things for yourself. I had never seen that before. I just felt all these sparks flying through my brain like... <gasps> this is what you can do. You're allowed to do this. And so after that, I decided that that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a journalist. I was going to be an international correspondent like Christiane Amanpour. I was going to take on the big guns and talk to the little people and the whole thing. And so that was always my dream. And I came, my dad sent me to university in the States, which was a huge blessing. I went to Northwestern, which has a great journalism program. And it was all, I had a plan and I was like full steam going for it. And then I got a job at CNN straight out of school. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't have to work at all. This is just landing in my lap, one thing after another. I did that for a few years. And then when I got married to my, he's an actor, so he was here in LA. How did you and your husband meet? Were you in school together? We or? were in school together. Okay. We lived in the same dorm. Oh, okay. Travel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, so I was walking through the boy side with my friend Jody, and I heard someone listening to Tori Amos really loudly and she was like, she was my heart. So it was Sylvia Plath. It was, there was a lot of like, there was just a lot of, uh, I think, unexplored sadness. And so I heard someone listening to it and I looked at the name on the door and his name is Brendan McNamara. And I was like, that's like a very poetic name. And I looked in and there he was sitting by himself listening to Tori Amos. And we just started talking and then that was it. When I moved here to LA, because we had gotten married... I just found that I couldn't find work in the news business. It was really hard. It was right when it was contracting. And I also found that I had kind of lost a little bit of the hustle or maybe I never had it to begin with. I don't know. What I ended up doing was cooking. I would be at home and I would watch TV until the end of the view and I would turn it off because something in me was like, if you start watching soap operas, you're going to be in trouble because <laughs> you're not going to stop. Yeah. They go all the way until like, I don't know, I would pick up the joy of cooking and I would thumb through it. And sometimes I'd watch Food Network as well. I just started food, watching cooking shows had always been my piece. It's my mom's too. And so it was something that we would do to relax and bond and really kind of we would judge the cooking on it as well. But I had never really cooked seriously. I had sort of dabbled here and there, but I wasn't doing it on a daily basis. And so now I did. That ignited a fire, like a huge fire in me where I just couldn't get enough. I mean, and that was right when blogs started. And so I was just reading every cooking blog that there was, every food magazine I could get my hands on, every cooking show that I could see. And then my husband gave me a gift certificate to a cooking school in the neighborhood, did that. And then I interned, I staged at a really lovely restaurant here in LA under a chef who now has a James Beard finally. All of this was sort of now leading me in that direction, right? I was like, oh, I guess now I'm going to be a chef. Around that time, I started shooting my own cooking show and my husband would direct it. I learned to edit because I was determined. For what platform? For YouTube? For YouTube. Okay, yeah. And this was old. This was like 2009. I mean, there weren't influencers back then. You just did stuff and you put it up there. I wasn't getting a ton of views, but I felt this hum. This is what I've always wanted to do and I can't believe I'm getting to do it. It felt like play and it still does when I get to do it. Because of that, a few people said there's a show on Food Network called Food Network Star and you should try out for that. And I thought they were crazy because I was not highly trained and I didn't have a lot of expertise, at least in my eyes. I knew I could 
function in front of a camera because of news training and maybe just a talent that God gave me. And just because I love it, I wasn't sure that I could perform on the cooking side. That was where the insecurity came from, was just sort of feeling like. Because everyone else had gone to culinary school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And worked at restaurants and that kind of thing. And that was before people were super comfortable on camera. I think everyone's used to talking into a phone camera, you know, on Instagram and stuff like that. But back then that wasn't really happening. So that idea of looking down into a lens that looks like it's stealing your soul, you know, was really intimidating to some people. And that was the one thing that I could do. So, yeah. And my husband and I knew that when I started that show, that would be the thing that the producers would hone in on was my lack of confidence. It's good narrative. It's a great, it's the greatest story arc, especially if by the end she wins, maybe her confidence is restored. I wanted that to be the narrative, but it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong thing to sort of, the more and more I learn about imposter syndrome and hearing from other people in their walks of life, it's sort of, everybody feels like they're in a place that they don't deserve and they're sort of making it up as they go along. I remember when I was young, I thought that everybody had a manual when they started a job and you read the manual and then you know how to do the job. When I got my first job, I was like, oh, we're just winging it? (laughs) Okay, you know. What do I say? Because even now you've hosted or been a part of three major food shows. How do you work with that relationship with yourself when you do feel like, God, I just got this lucky break and I'm a fraud and everyone's going to find out or I'm just... Putting yeah. words to it the way that would no, come that's to me. What, that's yeah. totally what it is. Yeah. I just, the tape in my head says, everyone's going to figure out that you don't know what you're doing and you're going to be humiliated and then your whole career is going to disappear and then you won't be able to provide for your family and you'll be ashamed to your family. And then it just goes down, 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 down that road. I think becoming a mom has been really helpful because I don't really have as much time to sit and think about those things. I think just having that time taken away from me has been a great thing because I'm thinking about my girls and wiping butts and making dinner and don't touch that and don't hit her and, you know, those sorts of things. Then when I'm in work mode, it's sort of it's like a hundred yard sprint. You know what I mean? You're just you're just trying to get it done as quickly as possible and you want to perform at your best level possible. I don't know that I've figured it out completely yet. I do feel like I've I have found people within the community that have welcomed me no matter what my credentials are or are not because they know who I am and they've tasted my food and they support me and they're sort of my cheerleaders. And I'm so grateful for them because to me, those are the people that remember what cooking is actually all about, which is it is really amazing to have award nominations and Michelin stars and all of that kind of stuff. But for me, what gave me joy when I first started cooking was creating something out of nothing and then sharing it with people and sitting together and eating it. And then the food kind of fades away. At first, it is front and center. And then as you eat and you talk, the food fades away and the conversation is what becomes the real entree, right? It's the real centerpiece of the table. And for me, that's always been the best thing ever. And it's also why I love to go out to eat because I can still have that conversation. And because my time is tighter and tighter, I don't have to make the food. We can sit and we can just get to the conversation part of things. How do you keep finding your own artistic voice? Because we're in a time now where there's so many people doing everything. Yeah. If you could never be like the first, mm-hmm. right? You, but you have to find a way to make it your own, make yeah. it feel like your own. Yeah. But at the same time, I remember when I was doing sculpture, like the, Google was not my friend because I'd be like, oh, I want to make a guillotine. And then I'd search guillotine art pieces. Yeah. There'd be so many of them. I and know. so eventually it's just like, you know what? I'm not going to look yeah. at what's online because yeah. then it's going to make me feel like it's not mine. Yeah. And I want this piece to feel like it, it's I mine. Think that's really it, wise. Because it came from me. Yeah. 
it just happened to already have been done by another artist i would feel like i didn't have permission to do certain Mm -hmm. stuff like oh Oh my gosh this guy used an umbrella it looks like none of my pieces can ever have an umbrella right right (laughs) right oh my gosh you're like speaking you're speaking my mind i have that a lot and i look back at some of the older recipes that i've written and i'm like wow how did i come up with that and it's because i just would sort of get up and start cooking whereas now if i have an idea about a recipe i go and google it and then i get pulled in all these different directions and then it ends up feeling like my recipe is a patchwork as opposed to a creation. I don't like that. It's much safer and in some ways it's more efficient because there's an aspect of recipe testing that has already occurred. So I know that this will work. Now I'm going to add my flavoring to it. I'm trying to get to that place where I stop Googling things and just trust that I know how to make things. It's funny because the more and more I cook and the more and more food TV I do and the more I realize wow, there's so much I don't know. And so that's what pushes me to the Google. I'm definitely in a place where I need to go back in and figure out who I am now, because that usually tells me who I am as a person. Like that's too difficult for me to really sort that out. But if I can just cook, I usually have a pretty good sense of where I am. Who are you as a cook? Like, who do you want to be? When you think about when you close your eyes and say, who's the chef I want to be? What does that look like? It looks like me, but it looks like who I want to be. But in this country, for sure, is to be that person that says, don't be scared. Don't be scared by these flavors. Don't be scared by these ingredients. Don't be scared. Just come and try it. Because, you know, when you were little and you thought you had all the crayons that ever were, and then you saw someone playing with the aqua tea and you're like, what? This whole world opens up and then you start coloring everything aqua teal. <laughs> That's how I feel about new flavors and new ingredients. I mean, I just, I literally will feel a passageway open up in my brain and it's exhilarating. And then there's the whole backstory that goes with that ingredient that helps me understand a culture and a people. And I just think it's such a fun, visceral, tactile way to understand something you didn't know you didn't know. Is that from like falling in love with the backstory of certain ingredients? Do you think that's because you were in journalism for a while? Oh, completely. That it's like, how does this fit the story? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, my email address when I was a 20-year-old was storyteller1 at hotmail.com. You can try, but I think I shut it down. You know, I was really into this idea of being a storyteller and weaving stories together, not my own, true stories. And I still, I'm still super passionate about that. And it's one of the shows that we want to make is just to find and tell people's stories because I think we're more similar than we are different, which I know everybody knows. But when you get down to something as inherent as what you eat and the fact that you have to eat, unless you're a Buddhist monk somewhere and you subsist on air, we have to eat. And so the things that we're drawn to are so telling about ourselves individually and as a whole. I think I'm also drawn to that idea because I grew up in Dubai and I felt like I didn't really belong in any group. I didn't, I went to an English school, but I wasn't, I wasn't British. So it didn't feel like I fully belonged there. I was one of the few sort of brown skinned kids at the beginning. I was Indian. I am Indian, but I don't speak the language as well as I should. And so I always felt a little bit outs with my cousins and stuff because I didn't have that. I was living in Dubai and knew Dubai like the back of my hand, but I was not a local, I was not a native. So I'm so passionate about finding out about people and understanding them and finding out where the circles overlap because that's how I would try to relate to people and make myself fit in their Venn diagram. One of my best friends 
or my best friend, I should say, is such a curiosity that he's like, he's always looking up at architecture and he's always mm-hmm. trying new things on the menu that he has to have. That's not something that comes to me naturally. Yeah. Left to my own devices, just get very just with what I know. I'm yeah. like a cat where I like map out an area. Like I come to LA, I map out like a yeah. mile and then that's my mile. I have my cafe, I have my deli, I have all this Ooh, stuff. I want to know where you go now. Yeah, nowhere interesting because I'm so boring. <laughs> But I want to, you know, I've been trying to do more novel things mm-hmm. and more things for novelty. Mm-hmm. And I think f- food is the, the next great chapter. Although right now I'm starting slow. I'm doing like jigsaw puzzles and things. Oh, that, good. Things that I couldn't possibly monetize. Yeah. You know, because my first intuition is how do I benefit from yeah, this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I know. I don't read novels because they serve no purpose. It's like I got to read the next self-help book or something. I completely, I I feel you so much. I just was reading, did you ever call The Night Circus? Which is, um, mm-hmm. it's a fun read. And I read it because my husband's a voracious reader. He was like, here, you got to read this. You'll love it. it. Took me embarrassingly long to finish it. Anyway, I was reading an interview with this lady who wrote it and how she was writing a sophomore book and it felt all that sophomore pressure. She did a similar thing that you were talking about where she went to a cabin in the middle of nowhere, no internet, no phone, so that she could just disassociate with anything and she couldn't read anything because it would feel like pressure. She said reading has, and then someone else was saying that reading has felt like a luxury. It's a luxury I think I need to get back to. I need to find things out because cooking was the thing for me. It was my antidepressant. Then when it became my job, there's still an aspect of that in there. But now every meal that I eat, I'm analyzing. Every meal that I cook, I'm analyzing. Every recipe I look at, again, it's it's work. So I have to find, I still haven't find something outside of that world, my antidepressant again. And I'm still looking for it. Depression is something that came up when I was researching you because you had really bad postpartum depression. Yeah. I have really bad just depression, depression. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I just got on a new medication. Cause Woohoo! I got, yeah, I got to that scary place and I was... Uh, I was down here in LA, actually, and I talked to my friend who's been producing for me and just said, we got to go to Kaiser. She said, but we have an interview in three hours. I said, we're going to Kaiser. And we did. We went to Kaiser and then we did the interview. It was great. You, you know? did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that you had your prescription in hand. You're like, let's go. Yeah. Wait, so you just started it? Yeah. I'm like, well, it's going to be weird for the viewers because this will be like six weeks or seven weeks out. Mm. Real time Sam here. Yeah, it might have been off by a couple dozen weeks. Anyway. At the time of recording, everyone, just so you don't get confused, I'm like on uh, Thursday will be two weeks on the new medication. So that's okay. when it starts to kick in. I know. Kick in. And I think it's helping a little bit okay. already. Yeah. Like Those first two weeks are weird, though. I would say it was bad postpartum depression. I think when I got myself into a support group and heard what other mums were dealing with, I can't help but just sort of say compare way more severe cases than I had. But I I had it enough that I knew something was up. Dad, I give him a lot of credit because he's dealt with depression. I only found out about that when I think I was in my teens. And so that was already in the back of my head. That was in the bloodline somehow. But I just thought, well, it's never going to get me. For me, I think God dropped these little breadcrumbs just to let me know, hey, this is going to come. You're going to deal with it because I've given you these little tidbits along the way so that you don't freak out and think that you've done something horribly wrong. So the fact that dad had had it, I remember listening to a lady on a radio show talking about when she had a total nervous breakdown on TV 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) My kind of lady. Yeah, because she was trying to just suppress it and just sort of white knuckle her way through it. And she had to go and and make peace with it. I remember her talking about taking her medication like a diabetic takes their medication. And my diabetes runs rampant through both sides of my family. So that really hit me. So when it was time for me to take meds and stuff, I was like, I was ready. Oh, wow. Yeah. It it's was, such a hurdle for some people. It, I'll be honest. I mean, there were definitely periods in my life, especially when I first became a Christian, where I was like, no, no, Jesus can heal anything. So you don't need to take that pill. You just need to pray some more. Oh, I think that once a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's not Jesus, it's something. That's like, this is a good reason to go off your meds. You yeah. Because <laughs> this will work. This will work. It, I know. It hasn't yet. So I far. know. Yeah. I know. And I still, I mean, I, I know that I feel like the depression, I never say my depression. I don't want to own it. So the depression is, yeah. I like that. Where'd you pick that up from? I just, that came from, I don't know, inside me. The depression. The depression, yeah. A little distance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want it to be, I have no trouble talking about it. And I, the gift for me has been that I've been able to talk to so many people about it personally, like through Instagram and in person seeing people, just sort of having the same conversation we're having where it's, it's okay. It's okay. Like, there is something wrong with you, but there's nothing wrong with you. We can can do a lot of things to try to help fix it. And especially with postpartum, there's a sense of like, this does not have to be forever. This could just be your body reacclimating, you know, post having a baby. Maybe in a couple of years, everything will kind of calm down, be back to quote unquote normal. I remember when I got postpartum depression after my first baby, I was like, Lord, why would you let this happen to me? Mm. Because... I mean, don't you feel like I have enough going on? <laughs> Why would you let this happen too? And and I remember just having this sense of, because I knew you'd do something about it. You'd go do something about it. And I was like, oh, well, I don't see myself that way, but okay. What I've found is that I talk about it all the time. I've felt I've helped friends with it. And then anytime there's like a cooking competition thing, I always play for that charity that helped me. And it has been such a gift to be able to take what was meant for ill and turn it into something good. It was meant to take me and my daughter down. And now I've been able to transform it and talk to people about it and help them go get some help. Yeah, that's the only thing I'll toot my own horn about is that I've been able to help a lot of women with it. Yeah, that's yeah. worth tooting your own horn yeah. about. Yeah, toot toot. Toot toot. <laughs> How, so your launch into cooking for a living happened pretty quickly, mm-hmm. right? Like, how did the first disappointment land? Like, because you're obviously still doing it. You're still active. You're still cooking professionally. Yeah. But so you're on the, the next Food Network star mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. You get your own show, Artie Party. Uh, it lasts a year. Was that the first disappointment? Where- yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I won next Food Network star, so Food Network's headquarters are at Chelsea Market in New York. They rent out this huge space on a brick building next door. Put my photo up there. Wow. It was massive. It must have been like 10 feet tall. I remember being like, what? Photo taken in front of it and everything. I thought, well, this is it. This is going to change our lives. And at that point, my husband and I were both unemployed. We were living on his unemployment check, which I'm so grateful for that check. I started this. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was two years ago. I don't know if they can still come after it. <laughs> yeah, I started this on an un- unemployment yeah. check. Yeah. I was like, okay, I need to scale back yep. to whatever it was, yep. $1,600. Yep. I was literally eating rice, Yep. you know, rice and lentils. Just canceled every automatic payment I could. And was like, okay, we need to yeah. live on this. And you just need to learn how to make 1600 a month. That's just how it started. That's great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I started on Artie Party on my unemployment check, <laughs> my on his, and my husband started putting up YouTube videos of skits that he would write, perform, and then he would put them up and stuff. We were just like, if this is what where we are right now, we're going to make the most of this time where we have no responsibilities really, apart from 
just make the thing that you always wanted to make. So I think it's such a gift. But when I won Food Network Star, I was like, here we go, Jada, here I come. I am now Martha Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew I had a long road ahead of me, but I realized was the whole world of food television was about to take a drastic change. Oh, across the board. Across the, I mean, because really at that point, it, it was Food Network and PBS. From that point on, it was Food Network, Bravo, TLC, YouTube, Netflix. It just, there are so many competitors trying to figure out what people actually want to watch is really difficult because your audience is getting sliced, sliced, sliced thinner and thinner and thinner. So when they canceled my show, I did not see it coming. I remember that it was right around my birthday. I think I was turning 33. Is 33 a great age? 33 is when Jesus started his ministry. Oh, okay. So I still have a couple years. (laughs) You're, just wait. Two, two and a half years. I want to check in with you. Oh, when good. You're 33 and I see hope what my happens. life doesn't implode. This one hurts. That's pretty prophetic. It uh, did implode. I'm okay now. And I still have a year to start my Jesus ministry. <laughs> No, it was great. That was great. Honestly, it was the best thing ever. I mean, it was rough, but I felt like, oh my gosh, did I just fail again? So for my birthday that year, we had already planned a trip. It was me, my husband and my two best friends. I was like, this could not have been better timed. That's the only thing that gave me comfort. I was like, okay, the timing of this means that God's got it and I just have to trust it. And this sucks. And I suck, obviously. It did. It's sort of that whole, the whole thing about being now super confident because you won this thing. This is the problem with putting your confidence in things outside of yourself or outside of God is that eventually they're going to disappoint you or they're going to fail. And then what do you do? That was really hard. And I, I hosted a couple of different shows after that to try to find something else. And it just was not hitting. And then around that time, I started working. I got a cookbook deal. It was good to say, okay, well, I'm working on my cookbook right now. And then at the it kept same, you busy. Yeah, kept me busy. <laughs> well, then listen to this. I got pregnant at that same point, And I actually found out I was pregnant because I was recipe testing. And when I opened up my spice box, I thought it smelled disgusting. Oh, hormone and, change. Yeah. And I called my friend who's a psychotherapist. And I was like, I think I've cracked. I don't know. Because I was crying and like all this stuff. And I'm an emotional person, but it was even more than that. She was like, have you taken a pregnancy test? And I was like, I have. She's like, just the one? I said, yeah. She's like, go to the dollar store and go get some more. And I found out I was pregnant. So getting pregnant and having a liar sort of took the focus off me and yet also put it back on me in a different way because with the depression, I was like, okay, I really have to sort out what is going on here. I have to let this perfectionist streak go because I don't want to pass it on to her, but it's also making me ill. Like I got to let that go. Becoming a mum really felt like a reset for me in retrospect, that it was like everything that's happened before that's great. That was a chapter. It matters. It's important. It's significant. It's wonderful, painful. Now we're going to start again. This is the next chapter. Sort of feel like when I look back at the person that I was during Next Food Network Star and those first few years of working after that, it's a different person altogether. I turned 41 this year and I feel so much more comfortable in my skin. I'm still very concerned about what people think of me. So I can't say I'm not, but I I, I don't know. There's just a lot less angst and anxiety running through my veins. And that could be the antidepressant too. I don't know. How do, you, how do you manage that fear of what other people think of you? Like it can definitely inhibit you from creating or it can get in the way of you creating. I know if I start wondering what people will think of it, A, I'm really, I'm like a really bad judge of it, mm-hmm. I think too. Cause I always, every time I feel like this is the thing, I got it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't do that well. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the thing that I don't think is it. So I'm, I'm A, a bad judge. Yeah. But how do you manage that? 
It's, it's really, it's my faith. Because the thing that I keep coming back to is that the thing that sort of resurrected my career is becoming a judge. It's preposterous that someone who had a failed show gets to come back now and be a judge. <laughs> right? Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> when you put it like that. Yeah. yeah. And so I've never really thought about it until now. So this may not be a great thing to talk about. I'm sure my manager will be like, don't say that. So that makes no sense. And and I felt very much like, who am I to judge these people? There was even an episode where I was judging Titans. There was like Rocco Despirito, Alex Guanaschelli, Mark Murphy. Like these are pillars in the industry. And I was judging their food. And I remember looking around and talking to Guy and being like, what are you doing? Why are you putting me here? You know, and he was like, you're the judge. I trust you. Just judge the food and he has constantly been like you gotta lean into it and you need to trust your opinion but what I realized is that even when I didn't feel like I was properly certified to do that job as a judge the number of people my Instagram followers exploded the thing that they just like we just love you as a judge we just love you as a presence or whatever it is and I was like thank you what is coming out of my mouth is not really as important as what is coming out of my pores. And for me, that's that's God. And so God is doing his thing. And whatever little like puppet show I'm doing over here is not nearly as important as what God is doing. So I need to not make the puppet show like the most important thing. So that's the only thing that gives me peace. Yeah, I mean, there's a verse in the Bible about like that we seek God's approval and not man's. Every time I read it, it cuts again because I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Because I do care deeply about it. When did you become such a God person? Well, so the part of India that I'm from is Catholic. It was colonized by the Portuguese. So Sequera, my last name is Portuguese. And so, and both of my parents were pretty devout Catholics growing up. It was never, it just never sunk in for me. And then when I, of all things, when I moved to LA was kind of when it started for me. And I think that's also because... In this godless town. Yeah, in this Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really think that there are people around other parts of the country that look at LA and they're like, they've said it to my husband, like, how can you live there in this Sodom and Gomorrah? And I'm like, it's really not that bad. No, there's definitely people that think that. I live in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Move aside. We're first. I know. True. I think when I moved here, I was really at a point of like... I didn't know who I was. And I think God did that on purpose, just took everything away, took my job away, which I, my identity was so deeply rooted in journalism and being a journalist and having gone to Medill journalism school. I know how that you don't say continue on. That's just not English, all these sorts of things. So he stripped that away from me, stripped all my friends away from me because here I was in a new town. I didn't know anybody. It was just a time to rebuild and rebuild like a sturdy foundation. That's kind of when it happened. And there was a lot of undoing that he had to do because there were some really mistaken ideas about God that I had picked up through Catholicism that he had to undo of a heavenly father who's out to get you, making a list and checking it twice and and that it's all about sort of following these rules and that you kind of earn brownie points to get into his good books. All of that's a lie, but that's what I had taken in. Yeah. And so- I call that conception of God sky daddy. Sky daddy? Yeah. <laughs> Like, you believe in Sky Daddy. What's Sky Daddy? It's just like when, when people describe it as this like judgy guy who's just making the list and just to hurt you and is just out to get you and punish you. It's like, that's very punitive. I, I mean, I think that he has that aspect of him, but I don't think that that's first and foremost. I think he believes very much in right and wrong. I remember one day when I was reading the Old Testament, this is in my 20s, and I was like not into, still have a hard time with the first testament, I like to say, so that my Jewish friends don't feel bad. The first, the first half that I was reading about, there was a verse about not talking about people behind their backs. And that hit me because I was super gossipy back then. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. It was the way it was explained. It was not just like, don't do that or I'll slap you. It was don't do that because it's just going to lead to your undoing. That has helped me understand all the don't do this parts of the Bible because all of them lead to bad consequences. All leads you down a path that then it's like, I really feel like becoming a mother has helped me understand God. I don't know if that has helped you becoming a father because I look at my daughter and I'm like, I will tell you when you're not supposed to do that what you've done is a bad choice. I love you still so much much. Like I will cover you in kisses. I will jump in front of a car for you. My love for you and my affection for you, even my liking of you is not diminished, but I do still have to tell you when you've gone the wrong way. And I will applaud you and I'll be cheering for you when you do the right thing. And so much more than when I'm upset at you for doing the wrong thing. So that's really helped me so much. But yeah, I think I got baptized in the Pacific Ocean. Cool. Yeah, it was really awesome. I don't think I really realized what I was doing back then. I just knew it was something I was ready to do. Now I sort of want to do it one more time because now I know what it means. I'm so happy that you found that. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I was raised Christian. Uh-huh. And then I ended up meth head where I was a devout Christian, you know, because <laughs> my life was such chaos, you yeah, know. Yeah, right. And then when I first got clean and sober, I like didn't feel the same way that I felt before. And so I was an atheist for four years. The only reason why I came back to having a God and having a higher power was because I noticed that my friends with a God were just doing better. When shit hit the fan, they were like, oh yeah, I figure out what I'm supposed to be doing right now and like this stuff's totally out of my power so I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. Where me, I was just trying to control every single thing in the world in my life and I tried it and I really liked it. Yeah. So I've come back to having a higher power and praying and Good. meditating almost selfishly because it helps me be a better person. Yeah. A better dad. Well, because I think the reason that works is because that's what we're designed for. We're designed as human beings. We're designed to be in relationship with God. So when we're not and we're trying to do things in our own power, that's why we feel crazy. Why we have anxiety and we can't sleep and we turn to all sorts of things to sort of help us through. And so when you come back to that, it's sort of like when the key goes back into the lock and it opens up. It's not going to open if you don't put anything in there. And so it's sort of why I think it works, because you're just going back to what you were designed to do, which is to be in relationship relationship with God to worship and, and pray with him and talk to him, which is what I think prayer is. But I'm so happy for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the most important thing in life, I think, is there's this guy named Ravi Zacharias. Do you know him? Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I can't remember if I actually do or if he's it's just this, a familiar like, sounding name. He's this snowy-head Indian guy. He grew up in a very devout Hindu family in India, and then he became a Christian, and then one by one in his family, everyone in his family became a Christian. So I love watching him because there's a lot of Hinduism that's still like in my family, just like things that happen. And then, you know, Hinduism super hip <laughs> right now. So I like to sort of hear from someone that actually practiced it. Like, how does this make sense with the Christian worldview? He's an apologist and he has this really great accent. Like, What is an apologist? Oh, so an apologist is a defender of the faith, technically. But for me, it's someone that helps explain things. So almost like someone who says, when someone says, for example, you can't trust the Bible, it's just written by a bunch of men, don't know if it's written with any credibility at all. Someone like Ravi has done all the research and talked to all the experts and he can tell you, well, this is why you can believe it because of this, 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 and this. And I will never attempt to do that because I will do it a disservice. But he can explain it in a way and help me just have a sense of like, okay, I'm on the right track. Because there, there are so many times where I'm like, wait, am I just talking to myself? Is this even real? So sometimes I need to hear from another, like a brother in the faith or a sister in the faith to say, no, no, it's real. It's cool. You're safe to believe in this because it's, sometimes it feels weird. I'm death has been on, on my mind a lot lately. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, with Are you the okay? Am I okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not dying. Okay. 
I mean, beyond how no. much we yeah, are all dying. I know of. Yeah. I'm curious, what is it that you want to do with, with your time here? You've already, it feels like, oh, I want to be a successful chef. Like mm-hmm. you've checked off a lot of the boxes. Yeah. Like what are the things that you want to do with your time here, even if it's just with family or, or with work? It's okay to dream right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. curious. Well, it's funny you say that because I stopped dreaming a long time ago. Part of what I've been trying to push myself to do again this year is to dream again. Because I just felt like every time I had a dream, whether it was a journalist dream or a cooking show dream, it just smashed. It just collapsed before my very eyes and it was really painful. Not on purpose, but something inside me just shut down and was like, we're not doing this anymore. The upside of that is that I'm super open to anything almost. So me saying yes to Food Network Star was trying to be open and say yes. I took a lot of improv classes too. So it was like, just say yes and go do it. So everything that's happened has, they've been beyond my wildest imagination that I would have a cookbook, that I would be a judge, that people would know who I am at the grocery store, you know, that that I would have two kids has also way beyond anything I planned. And that my two kids would walk around when we're outside and they're like, do you know my mom? She's on Food Network. My publicity team. That has been so extraordinary that a little part of me is like, why bother dreaming? Because whatever God's unrolling in front of me is amazing. There's a phrase that my mom used to say to me when I was little. She's like, are you just going to sit on your laurels? Which was like, just, are you going to sit on your ass? But sit on your laurels is just so good. I don't even know what that means. Well, there's a saying, rest on your laurels. Yes. Yeah. So she was like, are you going to sit on your laurels? And so I... It's so a t-shirt good. opportunity for I you. I know. I know. So I think there's a definitely part of me that feels like, okay, it's time to move out of the passive and start to strike. Because it's interesting that you talk about death. Of a really good friend of mine died this year. Yeah. And Same. Really? Yeah. It shakes you. And I know everybody says that, but it it shook me in a way that I thought I never would be shaken because I thought I had a pretty good sense of life and life expectancy and that kind of stuff. But it really, it shook me and it made me go, okay, let's not waste any more time. The immediate goals for my life are to provide for my girls and to provide for my parents and my sister. So those are the immediate goals in terms of like, just keep working until you have it all stored up. But everything else is just to be as open as possible present as possible to whatever it is that God made me for on the last day where I'm there with him that he'll look at me and be like you did good kid you left nothing on the floor I got this sense one time when I was praying that like God was like I've put so much in you I packed you full and that's why you all you know and I was like is that why I was always chubby and he was like yes And I, so I really, every time I I write my prayers because it helps me focus. So every time I write my prayers, if you looked at any of my prayer journals, it would say, I just want to live up to the potential that you put in me. And I don't want there to be any wasted opportunity when I come and see you that you're like, well, I did have that one thing for you, but you didn't say yes. So then just trying to be as open as possible to whatever it is that he wants to do. And so far, keeping that strategy as my main one has been so beyond beautiful do you want to hear my new visualization yeah, of dreams because i was born a dreamer i used oh, to have yeah. big dreams i was the kid that would design submarines that mm. you know that would work in my friend's parents pool and like i would think that i could build them and i was a huge dreamer and then of course like life happens and you get disappointed yeah. and for me now like there was a long period of my life where i just wasn't allowing myself to dream anymore Mm -hmm. because it was scary because it was a potential disappointment because it couldn't work out when i would dream they would be limited to what i thought was possible like what was realistic and that's not what i want i want to reconnect back with that nine-year-old version of myself yeah that dreamed 
big, scary dreams, unrealistic dreams. And so the way I want to have dreams that are so big and so wild and so untamed that I treat them like big, wild, untamed creatures, Mm. like a five-year-old trying to follow a wild mare. The wild mare wasn't meant to be caught. You're not supposed to catch it. It's supposed to be out there and be wild, but you're supposed to follow it anyway. Try to allow myself to have these big dreams. But the point is not to catch the dream. The point is to follow it like a... Like a kid would follow a wild animal just out of curiosity. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. That's really good. That's really good because I'm very sort of achievement focused and results focused. So it's good for me to remember that it's not actually about catching the wild mare. It's about the running that's important. That's actually the whole point of it. The whole point of it is that you run and you're exhausted and you're exhilarated. And it's funny, I was talking to my daughter last night. I said something about the apartment. She's like, we live in an apartment? And I was like, yeah. And she's like... (laughs) Oh, are we poor? Yeah, (laughs) I could just feel her world shattering. And I was like, what do you, what's, well, yeah, anytime you have a building and you have like a few homes in the same building, it's an apartment. And she was like, oh, she said, but, but we call it the house. And I was like, I know we just call it the house. She said, what if we took Kyle's house because Kyle lives above us and we took it off and we put it in the backyard and then we took off his roof. And then we super glued it to our house. And then we would have two houses. And I just was sort of the idea that you could super glue, <laughs> that you would cut off the roof off Kyle's house, first of all, and then super glue it to ours. And then I was like, well, what about Kyle? She was like, oh, okay, we could make him a roof. I was like, okay. But it was just this sort of, I didn't want to say to her, that's totally ridiculous. It can't happen. I was like, that's a great idea. Yeah. I was like, that. I, maybe Kyle would be into that. Untethered thinking of, well, this would be much better if we just did things this way. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to try to hold on to that. I like that visual a lot. Some of my favorite people are like the ones that have somehow kept some of that childlike quality because they come out like knowing so much. Yeah. And we like steal it from them. You know, like we really do. We, we, we steal it with like what's realistic and what's practical. Yeah. Out of fear that like, oh, no, you're going to be <laughs> be too confident in yourself. Yeah. And the, someone's going to pull the rug out from under you and then you're going to fall flat on your face. That's that's my tape. My husband, Brendan, on his business card, his tiny little business card, and it says, actor, writer, international man of consultation. (laughs) (laughs) Because he is the king of ideas. If I said to him, hey, I want to do a show about a cat, he'll come up with like 10 episodes immediately. He just has these ideas whizzing through his head. Part of that is because I think he's highly intelligent, but I think it's also because he reads and he nurtures that child in him. He always has and... I think he values it. And I think for a little while, I was like, it's too much. This is so silly how much you've protected that. And now I'm starting to realize like, no, actually, this is great. We went to Disney World last week and I didn't think I'd enjoy it as much as I did. But I think it's because you viscerally don't know what the world is like outside. You only know what is happening in Disney World. And even then in the park that you're in, in front of the ride that you're waiting for. So it's a whole day of imagination and joy and throwing your arms up in the and doing rides and feeling like a child again. I remember walking out of one of the rides and I felt like my eyes were wide open and I was laughing and I was like, (gasps) I realized that I don't feel like that most of the time. And it was nice to feel it again and know that it's possible. So yeah, I walked out of Disney World being like, I need to find 
something that helps me just lose the world for a little while. Purely enjoy playing with Legos, you know, and everything else disappears when they're doing that. Probably what you first got into food for. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just because you just love to do it. Like you and your mom love to do it together. Yeah. I like to end the program this way. Okay. If I could hand you my phone and on the other end of it would be you at whatever time you feel like you would need yourself the most now. Because like you said, you're the most comfortable that you've ever been in your own skin. Yeah. So you could talk to yourself when you were a child or a teen or when your show failed or was canceled. I don't want to say failed, but when your show No, was it's canceled. okay. It's right. And you could just send a little message to help that person gracefully know that they're going to become the woman that you've become yeah. today. Oh, that's such a good question. What would you want to say to them? I think I would speak to my 11 year old self because that was when I think all this insecurity started and it was because I'd gone from being this really my nickname my dad called me showcase because I was such a performer and I loved to make people laugh and stuff and then body was changing before everybody else's and just the differences between myself and my friends just seemed to get bigger and more drastic and it got to the point where I had no friends and I would hang around by myself all the time I think what I would say to that girl is it's okay you will have friends one day and actually one day you will have so many friends in a way that you never thought possible like I remember I just hit like a hundred thousand followers on my Instagram and when I wrote my little caption for it I was like I had no friends and now I have a hundred thousand friends that's how I feel about it that's what I would say to her is like the thing that is most important to you is to feel part of something and to feel included and one day all of this is going to be worth it because not only will you feel like you're part of something but you'll feel like you created something that other people can feel like they can be part of and then not accept Excluded. I gave a talk at church about this, that back then I felt like Artie the excluded and that now I feel like I'm Artie the includer. And so I would say to that 11 year old, I know it's really hard, but it's going to be so worth it when you get to that point where you're the person in charge of who comes in and out of this community, not like in a power way, but just sort of like, you'll know what it's like to be excluded. So you're not going to ever want to exclude anybody. You, know? you are included. You are included. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for your time. Oh my gosh. Thank you. This was great. I learned so much about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. If you would like to help us or just be a conscious consumer in general, you can share this episode with somebody you think would enjoy it. You can find us on social media and give us a follow and stay up to date. And you can support us financially by going to patreon.com slash how to human. Thanks and have a good day.